Let us pray. Almighty God, draw near this day to us and plant this word that we have heard this day in our hearts. Grow us and renew us. And extend your mercy upon us. Extend your compassion to us. That we would be guided to your throne. That we might walk the path that you have placed us on. Evermore toward the salvation that you have wrought for us in Christ. And so fill our hearts with your spirit. Fill our minds with your spirit. Fill our will with your spirit. That we would do that which you have called us to do always. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. We've heard a lot this day from each of our lessons. And our lessons are leading us toward something very important, something about the work of Jesus that we don't like to talk about. That Jesus' work does not always bring people together. That Jesus' work will cause division. That His words push people away from Him sometimes. That His words bring people to separate from one another because of what they force us to confront about ourselves. But it all flows out of who God is. It all flows out of the fact that God is both a God at hand <clears throat> and a God far away. That was the first line we heard this morning from our scriptures. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. That we have to realize that we so easily, as humanity, fall into two errors about the nature of God, about who God is. We too easily treat God as though He is a God who is merely at hand. This was a huge error for the ancient world. All the gods were tied, especially in the ancient Near East, to the land. So they were the God of this one land. They weren't a God outside of that land. They weren't a universal God over all things. They were the God of that land. And so it was easy to just sit there and look at Yahweh as like, well, he's only the God of, the, of Israel. This little sliver of land that Israel has, he is the God of this land, and he's, his influence doesn't extend beyond our borders. You hear that in some of the stories in the Old Testament about the peoples around Israel. I think of the peoples who stole the ark at one point and put it in their temple, and the ark ended up causing their idol to constantly fall over to the point that it was like the idol was worshiping Yahweh. And the king and the priests were so disturbed by this that they realized the power of Yahweh. And so they sent the ark back to the people of Israel. They put it on a cart with a couple of cows that had never had that had never been strapped to a cart. They had never had the um, I just forgot what it's called. <laughs> the yoke on it. Thank you. They had never had a yoke upon their necks and they just turned them loose. They're like, they'll go where they need to go. And sure enough, they did. 
a demonstration that God is not merely a God over his people's land, but that he is a God that is greater than all of that. And of course, the other half of that mistake is that we treat God as though he is merely a God who is far away. He is a God that is so utterly transcendent that he has nothing to do with us, that he is a silent God, that he is a God who does not speak, that he is a God who does not act, who just winds up the universe and lets it go and lets the universe move forward and he ignores humanity and just goes back into his own contemplation of his greatness, I guess. That we act like God has nothing to do with the creation he has made. That we separate these aspects of God so far from one another that they don't interact. God is either so imminent that he's impotent, that he has no power for us, or he is so highly transcendent that he is utterly indifferent. And so, for these prophets in the Old Testament that Yahweh is confronting here in Jeremiah 23, God says to them, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? These prophets of the Old Testament, these false prophets that God has been condemning and confronting throughout this chapter of Jeremiah 23. He has been complaining about them and pointing out their errors, speaking of how they have not spoken his word, how they have run where he told them not to run, how they have never been in his throne room, how they have never heard God speak, and yet they claim to speak for Yahweh himself. They act like God is a God who has no control over reality, that he only has influence in this little piece of land. So they speak of him as a God who is at hand, a God who is imminent, a God who is over the people of Israel, but not as the God who rules all things, who is the true king. And so God says, am I not also a God far away? Can anyone hide themselves from me? Are there any secrets that are hidden from me? God asks. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Am I not in all places at all times, and am I not all-knowing about everything? And therefore I have heard what the prophets said. They prophesied lies in my name. They say, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall the lie, there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another? How long will these prophets continue to lie? How long will they keep going and saying that they are speaking the name of Yahweh? How long will they keep going trying to make the people forget who Yahweh truly is? Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? These prophets claimed to speak in the name of Yahweh, at least in earlier days. The false prophets spoke in the name of false gods. The false prophets spoke in the name of Baal or Asherah. They spoke the words of false gods. And they led their fathers astray. They led the fathers away from Yahweh. They made them forget about Yahweh's name by speaking lies, by speaking of those other gods and their words. But here in this day, for Jeremiah's time, these prophets are speaking false words in the name of Yahweh himself. 
They make up words. They make up prophecies. They deceive the people. They speak of things that God is going to do that God will not do. They say, peace, peace is coming. All is fine. Nothing bad is happening. Whereas Yahweh has been prophesying, has been telling Jeremiah to prophesy of the disaster to come because of the people's faithlessness, because of the people's sinfulness, because of the people's turning away from Yahweh. Disaster is coming. But these false prophets speak of different things that Yahweh is going to do. And thus, as they speak lies in the name of Yahweh, they create a false Yahweh. They create a false God for the people to look to. And by creating a false God who is not truly Yahweh, but only claims the name Yahweh, who is not acting as Yahweh has said he will act, they cause the people to forget the true name of Yahweh. They lead the people to believe in a Yahweh who is false, a Yahweh who is indifferent, a Yahweh who is unable to effect change, a Yahweh who is not holy. For they strip away Yahweh's true holiness by saying that it doesn't matter what the people do. By preaching peace to the people when they should be preaching that judgment is coming, that their wickedness is coming back upon them, that they have not turned from their sins, but yet they revel in their sins. And so God will bring judgment against them. These prophets don't speak these words to the people. And so Yahweh says, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. And there we have it. God demands his prophets to speak faithfully his word, to speak his true word, and to not speak lies. The lies that they speak are straw, and his word is truly wheat. Their lies do not give any kind of nutrition to humanity. Their lies damage humanity. Their lies take humanity away from the true God, whereas His Word is true wheat. His Word is something that will bring life, that will bring newness, that will bring restoration. His Word is a fire that will drive out the bad, that will burn off the chaff, that will burn off the dross that is in us. It's a hammer that will break our hardened, rocky hearts and shatter it that it might be reassembled into a new kind of heart. Because he is both a God at hand, but also a God far above us. He is one in control of all things and yet is near to us, as we see in the reality of who Jesus is. As we look from this God who is both at hand and far away, we hear about what this God has accomplished. In Hebrews, it says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we hear of the one Lord Jesus, the true God, who came down to earth, who became more near to us than we could ever imagine, and yet was still far above us as the God of all creation. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the end goal of all that he was looking to do, endured the cross and despised the shame. 
That is the words of Jesus today that we hear from the Gospel of St. Luke. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Even here as he's moving toward the cross, he is looking toward that shame that he despises. He is looking toward that endurance of the cross on behalf of his people. And on one hand, he is distressed because it has not yet been accomplished. The fire has not been kindled. The judgment has not come. It is still pending as he travels to Jerusalem toward that cross on behalf of the people to accomplish the will of his father. How great is my distress until it is accomplished, he says. For the work that he does, this enduring the cross, this despising the shame, for the joy set before him, for the joy of the accomplishing of salvation for his people, for the salvation of the whole world, for the salvation that is poured upon us by the sheer favor and compassion and grace of our Lord God. He looks beyond that toward the joy, toward what will be done. But it causes him to also say, I have not come to bring peace. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. Because that is what the work of Jesus will do. It divides, yes, the sheep from the goats. As we hear in Matthew 25. The sheep are separated from the goats. Those who have heard the word of God and responded to the word of God and who have had faith and gone out and had the actions that connect to that faith and those who merely ignored the word of God and did nothing that God called them to do. He creates division. He separates people from people. St. Paul tells us, is it not true that there are factions within your church in order that the true believers would rise up, in order that the faithful would be known? Division is created by Jesus by his very work because he deals with sin. And the only way he can deal with sin is to call sin, sin. To go to the cross, to die for sin, to be judged for sin that is not his own, but yet is the world's. But then division is created when he confronts each and every one of us with the reality of sin, with the reality of his work, that yes, he dealt with sin, but he draws us to himself and brings us through faith, through repentance, through turning from that which he died for to that for which he lives now, to a new kind of life, to a transformed life. He calls us into something different. And those of us who respond are then also given that task and call to obedience to make known the work of Jesus. But to make known the work of Jesus, it means telling people that they have sinned. And thus division comes between us and others. No matter how gently we say, you have sinned, I have sinned, we have all sinned, and yet Christ has died for us, it will upset people because we're telling them that they have done wrong. People don't want to be told that they have been doing wrong, that they have sinned, that they have broken the law, and that there is nothing that they can do about it but receive the free work of God on their behalf that will change their hearts. Division comes because we are hard-hearted sinners. Division comes because we don't want the law to condemn us. We want the law to commend us. We want the law to say, you have done well. 
But when we confront the reality of the true law of God, the law that condemns us, the law that speaks of sin, the law that reveals our sin before our very eyes, we rebel even more. The sinfulness is inflamed even more deeply as we push back against the law and do what we want to do and then turn and soften the law so that it looks like we are doing the right things and the good things, changing the law to be what we want it to be. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Division comes because the law convicts and the gospel redeems. Those who respond those who embrace the faith that is given to them through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit dwelling with them, will be changed and transformed and called forth. The joy set before Him, He endured the cross. That is the Lord's joy to bring that change into our lives, to bring that renewal to us, to bring us into a place of redemption, to bring us into a place of change, of transformation, to make us truly whole. And so God divides the false prophets from the true prophets by calling for His Word to be preached. Jesus causes division by dying on the cross for the sins that exist in this world, for our sins, for my sins, for your sins. And that causes division between people as they have to confront the reality that they are sinners. Which brings us back to the epistle of Hebrews. To hear those other words that the writer has given to us that yes jesus has been given joy the joy of bringing salvation to us of bringing us into relation to the father and so what will we do the writer tells us to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely the sin that is holding on to us the sin that as we're running the race is like a hurdle thrown in front of us that will trip us to lay it aside, to avoid it, to see it for what it is, to see it as something that is going to trip you if you keep running toward it without responding to the reality that is there. And the way that we do that is to look to Christ, to look to the work that He has accomplished on our behalf, the one who is the founder, the perfecter of our faith. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There is our depth of encouragement, that He has walked this path for us. He has walked this path of dealing with judgment, of dealing with persecution, of dealing with the struggles in this world. He paved the path for us to walk upon. The one who has already endured all hostility on our behalf, we can look to Him and consider the work that He has accomplished for us. We can remember the redemption of the Lord accomplished in Jesus that we might not grow weary, that we would be encouraged, that we would be lifted up, that we would continue to struggle against the sin that clings to us. And that is where the final division truly occurs is within ourselves. That we are divided even within ourselves, that we are both saint and sinner. We are those who are redeemed and yet we are still sinners, the ones who reject God, the ones who rebel against God. And that is the work of God in us to make us whole, to undo that, to put to death continually that old man in order that that new man, that new life would rise up in us more and more. 
And God accomplishes this in us. For he is not only a God who is above us, but he is a God near to us. He understands and works and brings compassion and mercy to us in order to make this division within us apparent in order that he could then bring healing. For we cannot become whole unless we face the past. We cannot become whole unless we face the reality of our sinfulness. The more and more we recognize our sinfulness, the more and more we are healed. We are made whole in our spirits. The more and more we walk toward Christ, the more we will see the sin in us. And the more we may feel the discipline of our Father purifying us, making us more and more His sons and His daughters, in order that we would grow in the faith He has given us. We always want to reject the past. We want to ignore it and forget it. We want to leave it behind. Pretend that it didn't happen, thinking that if it didn't happen, we might be better for it. But we forget that the God we serve, the one we believe in, is in control of everything. That which is in the past for us, those sins that we have committed in the past, is that which He foresaw when He made all things. That which He foresaw is that which He uses now. By recognizing what we have done in the past, the sins that we have committed, the sins that we commit now, we begin to embrace the future, the new life that God has given to us. When we own the sin we have committed by confessing it, by being forgiven, by turning away from it. And we move toward that joy that the Lord has. If I pretend my sin doesn't exist, then I miss the forgiveness that God is bringing to me. And if I miss God's forgiveness, then I miss His salvation. God knows what I've done wrong and He is drawing me to confess it. I can't hide from His all-seeing eye. I can't hide from Him who is all-knowing. And yet Jesus died for everything, for those sins that I have committed, for the sins that you have committed. He looked past that shame of the cross of Him having to die naked on a tree with the wrath of God upon Him with the weight of the sins of the world upon him. He looked past the shamefulness of that to the joy of bringing salvation to you, to the joy of bringing salvation to me. He knew his death would mean the salvation of all who trust in him. And so division comes within us as we have to confront our sin in order to grow in the salvation we have been given. We can't say I have done no wrong. Because if we say we have done no wrong, then we miss the salvation. We miss the grace. We miss the mercy. And to say I have done wrong and to say I need to change is not me hating myself. But it's just simply seeing the reality of what I am in and of myself. God has set a standard, His law, which flows out of His very nature, which reveals His holiness to me. And we are but dust before Him. And so He has mercy and compassion on us and makes us 
and transforms us into the kind of people who will begin to move forward in seeing that law as that guide of letting that law convict, of letting that law break us down and divide us, divide the old from the new, that the new might grow and the old might die. And he does all of this through his son to die for us, to change us, to renew us. He despises the shame in order to bring about the joy of salvation to us, the joy that he feels even now. And so this God who is both far away and near has come and dealt with our sin for us. He divides us against ourselves, yes, in order that we might be saved, in order that we might then know the true peace that he brings. That He doesn't bring peace on this earth. He brings peace from heaven between us and God, between us and himself by doing away with the sin that stands between us. And so, yes, we have to confront our sin. We have to recognize our sins. We have to hear the Ten Commandments spoken to us over and over and over again in order that we would be changed by that hearing. Because at the end of those Ten Commandments, we hear that Christ has died for even these sins in order that you would be forgiven and transformed. And so hear that word of both law and gospel this day. That yes, you are a sinner. You're tied to sin. You're bound up in sin. You're broken by sin. And yet, Christ has died for that. He has died for whatever sin it is in order that you would be freed from that sin, that you would be unburdened from that sin, in order that you would know His salvation and know a new life, a new way of being, a new way of following after God, to be turned from the old way to the new, to be divided against your old self in order that you would Come to know the true peace that God pours out through Christ for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.